either putting in uh, the email wasteland. I know you're worried about monologuing, but it also it's feels like a email wasteland. <laughs> it feels... You caught me monologuing. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vicari. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So hey, Chris, we're early in the week today. We're recording on a different day. So about to ask how your week's been, but we're only two days in. So how's your day going? (laughs) That's been good. Yeah, nice short week. Uh, This is actually we're still recording in 2020, but this episode will be coming out in 2021. But yes, this will be my last day working for the year and then I'm taking the rest of it off and doing holiday things. So that is very exciting. But in terms of tech, I found a new thing this week that I absolutely love. Uh, So this is a utility called FX, and I found it on Twitter. Actually, Peter Cooper, who runs Cooper Press, so the JavaScript Weekly, Ruby Weekly, all of those wonderful newsletters, he tweeted about this tool, and I have used it a few times already this week, but I know that I'm going to be reaching for it constantly. So it's a tool very much like JQ for exploring JSON documents but I have found it to be wildly more intuitive and useful and just discoverable than JQ. Have you used JQ much in the past? I haven't, but I remember we've had this conversation in the past where you were telling me about how useful it is. JQ is an absolute Swiss army knife of handling JSON stuff, but it's always a little bit confusing. I've never typed a JQ command and just had it work other than dot. Dot is the one to pretty print a JSON document. So that one I know off the top of my head. Uh, but otherwise, there's ways to like traverse through a document and get the get the value for a key nested deeply within it and map over all of the elements of an array. But I can never quite get it. Uh, they Actually, it's really nice. They have an interactive playground sort of thing on the internet. This is JQ. But even then, I still don't quite like it, it's always a struggle for me. FX, on the other hand, is very similar in what it can do. You can pipe to it. You can have a file and reference that file. But once you're in it, it's an interactive mode. And so it's almost like you're in Vim. It actually has Vim-like key bindings where you can move up and down in the document, expand or collapse different sections. But you can also then start to type out a, an FX command. So like say you get a GitHub user info sort of thing. So you can say like dot repositories and now you're filtered down to see just the repositories. And then you can do bracket, bracket, and now you're mapping over each of those. So like dot repositories, bracket, bracket, dot title. Now you're getting the title from each of the repositories. But as you're typing that out, it's live previewing what the actual result looks like and even gives you tab completion of the different, like as you're trying to say a key, it will offer you a little pop-up menu with the available keys and just all of these little things that make it so intuitive and easy to pick up and I'm loving it. That sounds awesome. You mentioned that there's a FX playground. Uh, there's a JQ playground. I don't believe there is one for FX. Got it. But okay. I found I needed it less for FX. Hmm. So like with JQ, I always go to the playground because I'm like, oh, I need to interactive ripple sort of figure this out. But it, that exists on the web. Whereas with FX, it spins up this little curses sort of terminal UI and you're able to interactively poke around there, which is really nice. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I'm trying to think of an instance where I could use this and play around with it. Cause I'd really love to like, since you've mentioned this twice now, and now you found an even improved version that you really enjoy. So when do you typically work this into your workflow? Is it when you're just like issuing curl commands and then you're getting back some JSON and then you're using this tool? 
Yeah, basically that. So anytime I have a JSON endpoint that I'm hitting, getting back some data, and then I know that I need to traverse through, find some value at some key, something like that, then either JQ or now FX are great tools for sort of finding that. And then you can also use them to build up little command line scripts. So cat a JSON file, pipe it into either FX or JQ, and it will then execute whatever command you tell it and spit out the results as standard out. So you can put it in little shell pipelines and use it for processing. Like if you have a package JSON, you can cat the package JSON and then say dot scripts, and now it'll list out all the scripts, and then you can do further shell sort of command line processing with that. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah, to be able to cat those JSON files. Because yeah, I'm thinking when I'm usually issuing an API call, I tend to use Postman for a lot of that stuff. So then I'm using Postman to review the JSON and then sort of like scroll through it as you were mentioning. But I like that other use case that you've highlighted. I'm currently using Insomnia on the project that I'm working on, but that's more to like save a list of different endpoints and configurations and I can switch between users and things like that. But when I actually want to like poke at the response in a meaningful way, I think Insomnia has a copy as curl command. So I'll copy it out and then I'll pipe that into JQ or FX. So that's sort of where those two worlds meet for me. Poke at in a meaningful way. I think that just sums up web development. (laughs) Yes, I appreciate you uh, highlighting the interesting way that I framed that work and frankly, like you said, web development overall. But yeah, I'll uh, throw some stuff in the show notes for FX and for JQ because they're both very useful. But yeah, more and more, I think I'm going to be reaching for FX and feel free to try it out and let us know if that happens. But um, otherwise, what's up in your world? So I am taking a break from teaching RSpec. Uh, we'll resume in a couple of weeks and we'll be back into it. Or when we fast forward in this drops, it may be happening at that point. So we took a break over the holidays, just given there's so much like vacation and the fact that people would be away, it would be hard to schedule all of the different cohorts. So in the interim, I'm working on a project. This circles back to a conversation that we had a little while ago where I was troubleshooting a deployment issue with Google Cloud Platform. And we have sort of resolved that issue. At least we dug into understanding more of what was wrong. It comes down to, well, there was that specific error that we we're running into. I don't know if you recall, but there's a specific error that was waiting for like a condition to complete or something along those lines. And diving into Google Cloud Platform, we realized it had to do with one of like the nodes that was trying to spin up and it was just taking too long. And then some of the nodes were just not able to replicate. And so we ended up shutting some of those down and spinning up new ones. And then that resolved the deployment issue. But that whole architecture really needs to be updated. It's been a while since anyone has visited and then updated a number of those packages. So after chatting with the individual that owns the project, we're actually going to migrate it over to Heroku, just because that will be an easier system for them to maintain. It's also, in my very biased opinion, I think it's a more familiar platform for a number of developers. So if other other teams or other developers need to pick this up. Maybe they're the thought botters, maybe they're not. Uh, using Heroku will provide some more guidance while the Google Cloud platform was a bit more like custom sort of hand-rolled architecture. So that's what I'm doing in the interim which has been fun. Uh, There's two applications. There's a Phoenix and Elixir application. And then there is a Jekyll application that I'm moving over as well. I don't have anything too novel or new about that. I just started it today. So that's going along nicely. Interesting. I'm trying to remember back when you were talking through it. I remember a bunch of like Docker conversations and other things. And I'm trying to remember if I snarkily asked, have you thought of just moving it to Heroku? And I don't think I did, which is surprising for me. Because that's that's what I do sort of professionally, hopefully with less snark than 
<laughs> only the requisite amount of snark but yeah i also can't recall i'd have to go back and listen to that episode to see exactly what we talked about well because in the interim it just seemed like something was wrong with the application versus the architecture but yeah i, I do feel good about where we're headed i think it will be more maintainable for because it's just one person who is maintaining this application and running this business so by migrating over to heroku it's going to be much easier for them to manage and then have less unknowns yeah, that makes sense. Although you mentioned there's a Phoenix and Elixir app, which that totally makes sense for Heroku to be the choice. But I, I wonder for the other one, which you mentioned is a Jekyll app, or presumably a Jekyll site, like is this a generate a static site and then serve that? And if so, is there an option for actually not even using Heroku at that point, but using like a Netlify or other static host sort of thing? So I'm sure we could deploy the Jekyll site just to Netlify, but it works very closely with the Phoenix app. So I think it makes sense just to put them both on Heroku versus spreading them out. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, as, as we're talking about taking complexity out of the architecture and how the deployment process, like having it all on the same thing makes sense, even if it's running a process that isn't technically necessary for the Jekyll one. That seems like a good choice then to keep them collected and have only one deployment platform that you need to think about. But yeah, I think given that and the, the integration between the two of them, and frankly, just the fact that it's nice when there's only the one platform, I think having both of them on Heroku totally makes sense. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a big improvement. I'm very excited to have it done. And once we get this first piece completed, where we actually have both applications deployed, then we can look back for other ways to simplify the applications and also apply some of those other upgrades. Because right now, uh, the Jekyll app is running on like Ruby 2.4.2, which I'm pretty sure isn't supported anymore. So there's some other improvements I'm excited to make once we know the deployment process is stable. And then we'll also need to go through actually migrating the traffic and data over to the new applications on Heroku. So it'll be fun. It's something I haven't done before where I've actually taken an existing system and then migrated the deployment and hosting over to Heroku. So it's been a bit of an adventure. On a slightly different note, uh, Ruby 3 was released a few weeks ago back on December 20th. I'm very excited about that. Have you had a chance to look through some of the new features for Ruby 3? I have scanned through the release docs and I've been sort of following at a distance a number of like as they were more conversational or more like RFC thinking through. But now that it's real, so this is the RC1 that just dropped. And yeah, I'm very interested to see where it's at. What caught your attention first? There's a couple of things that I'm excited about and some I need to dive more into because I can't speak to them as thoroughly. Uh, but the high level stuff is the fact that we now have a type signature language that's being shipped with Ruby 3. So specifically RBS, which is Ruby's new type signature language. So I think four years ago, uh, Matt's was talking about the goal of Ruby 3 was to ship with some type checking. And my impression is that the Ruby team noticed that a number of type checkers already exist in the Ruby community. And rather than creating a new type checker, instead, they wanted to help set some standards by introducing RBS, which can then be used to define types. And then those types can be used with various type checkers, which creates interoperability between those existing type checkers. And it encourages competition for then who can build the best type checker. So that seems really cool. That's interesting. I didn't actually realize that the intention was for RBS to be sort of the like shared standard implementation, because I, I, one of the things I was wondering is Sorbet exists out there in the world as an attempt at this sort of gradual typing on Ruby. And would this be competition or not? So I don't know how comfortably they're going to interact. But if they are able to coexist, and like you said, have hopefully friendly competition in the world to make a better typed world in Ruby, that is interesting to me. 
Yeah, same. Initially, when I saw that feature, I thought it was going to be closer to what you're describing. But that's my understanding is that it's really intended to set that sort of standard of we're creating this typed language for you, or this language that you can use to define type signatures. And then you can have your own type checkers that can then share these types. And then how you define checking those types can be left to like some of the existing community packages like Sorbet. I think there's a couple of others, but Sorbet is the one that comes top of mind to me. And then the second half of RBS that's exciting is that Ruby 3 is shipping a complete set of signatures for the Ruby core library and standard library, which then eliminates some of the work that the existing type checkers are having to do because they're having to recreate those types independently each time that they're trying to add types to Ruby. But now Ruby is actually going, Ruby 3 specifically will ship with all of those type signatures. So that will reduce some of the load on those community projects. Oh, that's nice that they're going to be shipping that as part of the standard library and presumably maintaining that as things move forward. And it's nice when those get to move in sequence as opposed to like the standard library changes and then community has to like race to keep up with that. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. Actually, a question I have for you. So there's two things that stand out to me about Ruby getting types. One is that it's Ruby and that it's known for its dynamism and all of its fun adventures. And it's very hard to tell what a Ruby program is going to do at rest. So adding types to that is interesting. The other thing is, as far as I understand it, the canonical definition that's coming with Ruby 3 is the types get defined in a separate file. So it's like a, a file that is adjacent to the real the implementation file. So almost like header files in C. How do you feel about both of those things? A, the separation between the types and the implementation, and B, just Ruby having types. And how's it going to go? What's your guess? Is this going to work out well for the community? Yeah, the first one feels a bit like how TypeScript handles it, where you can define your types in line, but then you can also define your types in a separate declaration file. And that feels akin to how RBS is handling it, where you will have your types in a separate file. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that aspect of TypeScript, the separate declaration files. I was mostly thinking about the, like, as I'm authoring new TypeScript, I am writing the type annotations in line. So I'm saying, like, this thing is an interface. It's shaped like this. This function takes a string and it returns a number, that kind of stuff. And that's all written in line. As far as I understand it, you cannot do that with Ruby or with Ruby's new gradual typing. All of the type information is put in the separate ride-along files. And that indirection feels a little odd to me. Uh, I understand it. And Matt wants beauty and purity in our Ruby files and wants that to remain. But I'm interested to see how that plays out or if I will find it to be a hindrance or confusing or anything like that or if it'll just work. Could be one of those things. It's just like, yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah, I see what you're saying now. And that's a good point because there is that disconnect where it's nice as you're thinking about your function, you can define that type signature up front and they're next to each other versus this one. It's in a whole separate file. So you're going to think about it less. So I think that's where type prof comes in next. So that has also shipped with Ruby 3 and it reads plain 
non-type annotated Ruby code, and then it's going to analyze what methods are defined and how they're used. And then it generates a prototype of type signature in RBS format. So it's experimental with Ruby 3. It's only for a subset of Ruby language that's supported at this stage. But I think the goal is that or at least this first round, we may not be handcrafting our types initially, but instead using type prof to help us work with RBS to then define those types. I like that they're shipping that as like part of the first offering, having this type inference and then dump something out. That's actually something I want in TypeScript a lot where I'm like in the editor and I want to extract a function and I would love to just get to like, please extract and annotate in one like refactoring move in the editor. It might be a thing that VS Code does and I'm just stuck in Vim land. But it's interesting that this is coming with the first pass in Ruby land. I still like I want to be able to do that authoring and in the past, I would have been probably more fine with that separation. But now, like as a weird association, working with Tailwind, which is a CSS library, but interestingly, it, it's really highlighted the idea of I want to have things co-located when they are the same. Like when I'm talking about the user class, I want all the stuff about the user class to be there. And if it's something that I think is semi-unrelated, then I'll extract that entirely. But all the user stuff I want right there. And like, it's interesting how working with Tailwind has made me feel that so pointedly. Like suddenly I, I get it. I can see things much more clearly because all of that style stuff is is in there rather than it's a class name, which I go to a different file and I find that. And then I look up what the class is, you know, what everything is. But again, maybe it'll just be fine. Yeah, I'm with you. I feel like having an alliance going to make it far more influential in how I'm thinking about it and using it. Otherwise, it just feels like an additional step in terms of like generating like docs or something like, oh, don't forget to generate the types. And then you can use a type checker to analyze it for you, but it's not helping me in the moment as I'm writing my code. So yeah, I think that's a good point. To circle back to your other question in regards to the fact that Ruby is getting types, I'm still in that observer stage where I see what's happening and I'm aware of it, but I haven't played around with it at all. And I haven't really sat back to think about how is this going to impact my workflow? What benefits am I going to receive from this? So I'm really intrigued, but I I don't feel like I've hit that emotional analysis of it yet where I'm truly using it to understand what I think of it. I'm very much in the same boat of I'm going to watch this for a while and I'll probably play around with it at some point, like pull it down, add it to a project and see what that is like. I could definitely see it going terribly where Ruby is just like we're trying to force fit something here and the community doesn't really adopt it. And it's one of those things that sort of fractures mindshare and all of that. That said, the fact that TypeScript has been as effective as it has and despite the fact that Ruby is truly, I think, one of the most dynamic languages I've ever worked with, JavaScript has more noise, for lack of a better word. Like one of the things I've been running into on a TypeScript project a bunch lately is the fact that we have null and undefined and they are everywhere. And sometimes you have one, but you probably mean the other. And then you have like, okay, this thing's a union of a number or a string or a string array or null or undefined. Have fun. It's like, oh man, bringing types to that is not a game that I actually want to play. Whereas I think in most of my Ruby work, I feel like things are more concrete. They just can vary at runtime. But I actually think the code I write tends to vary less at runtime. I'm not sure. So I could see any possible outcome here. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't want methods that return a buffet of options. I prefer just a couple, please. <laughs> 
I'm so glad you called that out too, because as you were talking yourself through sort of like the outcomes, like, is this a force fit and will it work? And it's like, well, TypeScript is a great example of how this has really worked well and people are really adapting to TypeScript and enjoying the use of it. So I could see it going the same way for Ruby and it's the first iteration. So I feel like with most first iterations, people will be really skeptical. There'll be some improvements along the way. And then at one point we'll just be like, yeah, it's a thing. It's always been there and we're just accustomed to it. On the cleanup side, I feel like I should mention this to friends who are working on upgrading to 3.0 since it's something that we talked about in a previous episode regarding positional arguments and keyword arguments, because this is the one where it's going to break your app. So if you are seeing those warnings regarding the positional and keyword args in 2.7, then it shouldn't work on Ruby 3. It's just going to actually raise an error in this case. So there's a really helpful Ruby language post that we can link to in the show notes as it dives into the specific details. But the short version is that when you want to pass keyword arguments, you should always use keyword argument syntax or the double splat operator. And then the same idea applies for when defining a method that accepts keyword arguments, use the keyword syntax or the double splat operator. So I feel like I should warn folks of that one because I know that one has tripped me up several times in understanding how exactly Ruby wants it done so it won't fuss when we upgrade to Ruby 3. So it won't fuss. <laughs> yeah, overall, it looks like it's going to be a really fantastic release. And there's a bunch of performance things like Ruby 3 was supposed to be three times as fast, I think was an adage. And I think they got there. So that's exciting. There's also Ractor, which is an actor model implementation in sort of core standard Ruby, uh, which I'll be honest, I don't really know what those things mean, but I've heard good things. So having a better concurrency model seems like a useful thing that will help speed up some programs and the fact that it's in there in the core. This all seems great. That's one of those things that I expect I won't use directly, but I'll end up benefiting from its existence in things like web servers or something like that that uses, I don't know, somebody is going to use it better than I would, but I'm glad it's there. And then the other one that I'm interested in seeing again how it plays out, but that's pattern matching. So now we have sort of case destructuring and pattern matching in method definitions and other things. And that's just a language feature that I love in a bunch of other languages. So I'm really happy to see it brought to Ruby. Looking at the actual syntax, it's kind of interesting. But again, it's one of those where I just need to spend a little bit of time with it and see how it uh, fleshes out. But Overall, pattern matching is a feature that I love. So excited to have that in Ruby. Same. I'm also excited to play around with pattern matching. Even though it's been around since 2.7, I just really haven't spent any time investing in that new part of Ruby. That new, new. As a very small fun fact of Ruby 3.0, this stuck out to me. There's a Rails method that was given its Ruby wings. So the hash accept method, which is defined in Rails, thanks to some core extensions, is now built into Ruby. And that little fact just brought me joy. And just I like the fact that it has migrated its way into the Ruby language. And then the other thing that really stood out to me is that Ruby has added experimental support for endless method definitions, which looks pretty wild. Have you seen the syntax for those? Uh, having now scrolled down the page, yes, I have seen that syntax, uh, but I hadn't before this. So that is in line and interesting. Yeah, the endless syntax can be used to write single line methods. So currently, if I'm writing a method, I have to include that semicolon and then the end at the very end of that method definition. Now, if you want to define a single line method, it's just your def method and then parens for args and then equals your expression. There are some limitations with this. And some of those are around the parentheses are mandatory while writing the definition for arguments. And then also the body must be an argument expression. 
So there's a really nice article I found that highlights some of the examples and then talks about some of these limitations. So we can drop that into the show notes as well. But yeah, I'm really excited for this. It looks it looks funky, but there's something about it that I'm really drawn to. I found myself extracting one-line methods often, uh, not like as a rule or anything like that, but it's a thing that comes up. And working in JavaScript, I really like writing one-line arrow functions. So I get it. I'm, I'm excited for this as well. This will be a nice little change. But yeah, so overall, very excited about all the fun things coming with Ruby 3. But shifting ever so slightly to round out the episode, we have a listener question. This one came in through Twitter. But again, just as a reminder, folks, we love getting listener questions. Uh, you can send them on Twitter. You can send them to email host at bikeshed.fm. Um, but in this case, a Woot Kellerman wrote in to say, I love listening to your podcast. Thank you very much. I would love for you to share how you manage your TMUX sessions, starting, restoring, etc. Do you use a custom script or tool, any plugin, or do you simply set them up when needed? So Steph, what's your approach here? So my answer to this is pretty simple, where I just set them up when I need them. I don't have a particular script that runs anything and configures any particular setup for me. I know some people at ThoughtBot really enjoy writing scripts to then set up their TMUX environment. So then as soon as they hop into their terminal, they can run that script and then they are just plopped into exactly what they need with all the windows configured. So they'll have one pane open for code, one pane open for text, and then whatever else that they're interested in. Brian Tingren is someone who's really into this and has shared some very very cool scripts. I'm pretty plain when it comes to TMUX. I just open them as I need them and then configure them from there. How about you? Yeah, similar. I've poked around with a bunch of them. I feel like there's Tmuxinator, Tmasil, handful of others, but it's most of the time I don't feel that pain and I switch enough between different projects that it's been valuable to me to get into my muscle memory how to quickly split and divide a Tmux session. Although of late, I've been working on a number of Rails projects where I'll have Vim as a primary thing and then I'll have the Rails server and then separately I'll have the Webpack Webpacker dev server running and having to set up those three is just enough that it's sort of pushing me in that direction that I'm considering it. But otherwise, I have a couple of Tmux configurations that make opening new splits more straightforward. Uh, basically, the like vertical horizontal separation has always confused me. So I mapped them to the vertical pipe character and the horizontal dash character so that they like slice the screen in the direction that the key binding looks like. And overall, there's a bunch of stuff in the upcase Tmux trail. If anyone is looking for more details on how I personally and a number of ThoughtBotters happen to go about Tmuxing. But um, yeah, thus far, I have not needed one of the fancy setup scripts. Yeah, everything that you said resonates with me. Pretty much your Tmux configuration is what I have <laughs> since I learned Tmux from Upcase and then also from pairing with you and other ThoughtBotters. Tmuxinator does look really cool. I have seen people do some really neat stuff with it, but it's just an area that I haven't invested my time as I find it pretty simple to just spin up the environment that I need on the fly. So yeah, short answer for Steph and I is no, we do not use any of these, but Tmuxinator seems to be a standout one, and we've seen some colleagues use that to great effect. So if that's something that you're interested in, then yeah, definitely recommend Tmuxinator as an option there. And as always, thank you so much for sending in the question. We really do appreciate getting the listener questions and hopefully providing information that is of particular interest to you folks. But with that, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or a review in iTunes as it helps other people find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product 
and team a success.